Coming up next on Inside the Box, part two of our conversation with Dr. Craig Coonan concerning the 1978 NBC miniseries, Holocaust. Now, if you haven't already listened to part one, that's okay, you can still enjoy part two, but I highly recommend going back and listening to part one. Craig is the former director of the Mercer County Holocaust, Genocide, and Human Rights Center in Mercer County, New Jersey. He's traveled to Poland a half a dozen times to conduct research about the Holocaust, has led four study abroad trips there, and has completed two week-long seminars at Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum and Memorial. Now, I do want to mention a quick disclaimer that the topics that we discuss in this episode uh, can be graphic at times. It's certainly heavy material, and we just want to make sure that any listeners who may be sensitive to that or young listeners just be mindful of what we are discussing today. Without further ado, here's part two of our conversation with Craig. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Hello and welcome to Inside the Box. I'm Steve Voorhees alongside Jonathan Bullinger. And today we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Craig Coonan on the 1978 miniseries Holocaust that aired on NBC. And where we left off in the last episode, we were discussing the portrayal of death and possibly perpetuating stereotypes of the way they portrayed Jewish people's death uh, within this miniseries. And I, I want to look at the other side, Craig, and look at Dorf. Uh, Eric Dorf is a Nazi soldier, uh, joins the administration um, up into the role of decision-making, and he ends up taking his own life. And I, I'm wondering about how the death of uh, Dorf, who's a fictional character, plays into the real Holocaust and, and what you thought of the way NBC handled that. Dorf took a cowardly death. He took a cyanide pill, you know, and, and avoided justice, evaded justice because of the cyanide pill, which, you know, happened with uh, Heinrich Himmler, it happens with um, Hermann Goering, and, you know, they evade justice because they, they commit suicide. It's something that it was real, um, and it was, it was d- disappointing to see that they don't meet their, you know, get get these things out. He's still, to the very end, Dorf was such a, such, again, a two-dimensional character that really uh, becomes pure evil by the end, I guess, the epitome of what is all bad about Nazis. But he, he didn't meet justice at the end, really. He just, he just dies, so. What's this, Major? I'm not certain. Dead bodies, of course. We've got sworn testimony from 24 witnesses that you helped supervise gassing operations at Auschwitz and other camps and were present when selections and mass killings took place. I may have been present a few times as Berlin's representative, but I made no decisions. These came from Berlin. The Jews had to be dealt with. Permitted to rise to power again, their money and influence would destroy Germany. And that is why we, unwillingly to be sure, why we had to liquidate children. The children We had to kill the children, that's the uh, 
much. If I made the decisions, Dorf, I'd put a bullet in your head right now. But since we do things in a democratic way, you'll be tried. Let's talk about the end of this film. Uh, in the final scenes, Rudy, the lone survivor of the Weiss family, uh, is playing soccer, uh, something that he did as a younger man in the beginning of the story. And he's playing soccer with kids that he is now going to be overseeing and sort of becoming, um, I guess, the father figure of. And we end with a freeze frame of him smiling. And that's the way the story ends. And I found this to be unsettling. It, it's the uh, you know stereotypical, let's put a bow on this at the end of the story for television that we see in so many you know, sitcoms and dramas. But for a story such as this, it, um, it, it just kind of left me dumbfounded. And I, I just sort of sat there for yeah. a while and, and, and um, reflected on that. Yeah. I, and I'm, you know, again, you got, it, it's, a, it's the happy ending. It's the happy ending, which is uh, you know, amazingly they have a happy ending, sort of despite the fact that his parents and his siblings have all died. And somehow, remarkably, Inga survives uh, Therizin with a child. Um, that is wrapped up in a bow and said, look, she's alive. How'd that happen? All the Jews of Therizin were sent to Auschwitz and they were murdered in the gas chambers after. But no one has to talk about that one in the miniseries, I guess, right? Um, I digress. But, you know, at the ending, it's a happy ending. It seems like, you know, they, they don't talk about the, the death marches before liberation. They don't talk about... Um, you know, a number, number of things that they could have made it, uh, it was much, the, the, the displacement of peoples, the DP camps that existed after the war, how some people lived in these DP, DP camps for three, four years before they were finally moved on to a different place, a different country, uh, the dis, dislocation of the, the, the um, in Kielce, a city in Poland, just south of Warsaw. There was a pogrom in in July, July uh, July of forty six, where dozens of Jews were murdered by Poles because um, they came back, and you know the old blood libel concerns of the Middle Ages were brought back, and um, Poles killed them a year later. They weren't welcome in a very different place. The Jewish communities of of Poland were decimated. Um, they don't mention this. It sort of ends with liberation. It ends with um, yeah, everyone died, but we still live and. You're not going to take children back to uh, to Israel and you're going to play soccer with them and teach them how to play soccer, just like you did before the war. Um, it's nice for television, but again, I can see why people who survived are, are cringing and angry with it. And I, I don't think it does a service to the memory of the victims. Um, I'm not sure that's what NBC wanted. It's a, it's a great way to end a TV program, but it's not a great way to sort of end a TV program about the Holocaust. And uh, that's, you know, I was like, I was shocked, you know, you know, when I saw him playing soccer at the end. I saw the boys before that and I saw him at the end. It's like, you know, he's going to be playing with those kids because he did it earlier in, in episode one. So it was uh, it was uh, not a, not a not a strong way to end it. But it, and again, there are so many things we could we could criticize this and talk and, uh, you know, about it for hours but I think you need to look at the end game and maybe that's what we'll move next is, you know, what comes from this? That's what's more important. You know, it has so many flaws, but it's also so important. And it did mark a turning point in many ways. 
uh, for Holocaust and Holocaust uh, in, in American memory. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit. And I mean, obviously, you're a guest. So you know, you can tell us what you feel some of the the bigger, more immediate impacts were from the fact that NBC did this, you know, I mean, it wasn't altruistic, you know, it was a, it was a business decision, but this experiment, um, I think the, the one that I'm familiar with is the rise in the beginning of, uh, videotaping surviving witness testimonies and building archives about their, their stories. I feel like that began in the, uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, what uh, what would you say are some of the more sort of immediate uh, results of having? And again, for the younger listeners, <laughs> you know, there's three options: ABC, uh, sorry, NBC, CBS, ABC, and you know, uh, and home box office, PBS, yeah, and home box office, but like. I just, I can never quite get across to my students other than maybe saying like, it's kind of like a tweet that's popular or whatever, but the, just the idea that you would come in the next day. And this is now for our older listeners, especially if you look at like the get back documentary that Peter Jackson did with the Beatles, but like you'd get into your office or your workspace or your family the next day. And basically you'd be like, Hey, did you, did you watch that thing last night? And like nine times out of 10, like, yeah, I also watched it. Cause it was like the only thing on, there was the only option. So I, there's just this effect when you have these big network TV moments, it, it creates at least uh, somewhat of a dialogue. It may not last uh, forever, but what, what, what would you say is some of the, the, the outcomes here of, of, you know, after NBC went, 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 uh, went on this journey to try to try to talk about the Holocaust? One of the most immediate outcomes, and it was something that was already being discussed, but it seems more overt because of the miniseries that came out was the creation of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Uh, President Carter was interested in doing something for the Holocaust even before the miniseries in D.C. There was talk about a monument or something. Uh, and in the month after the airing of the broadcast, he signed an executive order that said we should investigate uh, the possibility of a museum or some kind of monument or memorial to victims of the Holocaust. Um, he was criticized at the time because he said, it looks like you're just knee-jerk reaction to this miniseries. And he said, well, yeah, it is. But, you know, when else would I do it? When people aren't talking about the Holocaust, this is a good way to capitalize on a moment and move it forward. So he created this, uh, you know, political interest in doing something in D.C. about the Holocaust. And a year and a half later, Congress passed uh, a law that said, or passed a, a, a resolution saying that they were going to create the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in early 1980. Uh, and Carter signed it and it went off and it did take 13 more years to create the museum, which opened in 93. But um, it was a, a catalyst, I would say, not the only reason, but it really helped speed up the process and the discussions of people talking about a museum on the mall for the Holocaust. Um, Elie Wiesel was put in charge of the project, and it was a very long and meandering project, and Elie Wiesel was just as complicated as he was with that as he would be with um, talking about the Holocaust miniseries. It took a long time to get that finished product. and um, But that was something I think is very important, and people... 
have gone, you know, it, it was the, it, it predates Yad Vashem and Memorial Yad Vashem, which opens in the early 2000s, you know, and um, it was a memorial but for but the museum at Yad Vashem in the early 2000s as well. So it's something that was very, um, you know, important, that I think was influenced by the miniseries. It opens up a whole new genre of films. Uh, Sophie's Choice comes a couple of years later, starring Meryl Streep, of all things, uh, which uh, a few years later, Rutger Hauer stars in, Rutger Hauer stars in Escape from Sobibor. Uh, again, a movie that is a Hollywood movie, poorly done, but a movie that is about the Holocaust and the uh, Sobibor uprising, uh, which eventually culminates in the movie Schindler's List, who comes comes out in '93 from the book uh, by Thomas Kennelly, but uh, so that's sort of how it goes with you know in politics and and in uh, in movies and so forth. But as you're saying as well, the visual archives and so forth, the Shoah Foundation, which really got a boost from Spielberg in the early '90s with the movie uh, with the movie Schindler's List, it comes it, it was created before that though. You know the video archiving of all these Holocaust survivors. And other survivors of other genocides, um, it starts, you know, in earnest in the '80s, and it's created, you know, in the '70s. I think it it's, it's originates in the '70s, but actually starts in earnest in the '80s and takes off leaps and bounds in the '90s after and after Schindler's List. But again, this uh, this miniseries got people using the term, thinking about the word, you know, support politically for a museum. Uh, Colleges again. I don't want to use random stats, but as I said before, only a couple colleges in this country had a Holocaust class in the 1970s. By the early 80s, there were 200 over 200 colleges who had Holocaust courses. So, is it the miniseries? You know, 120 million people watch this miniseries. I think a lot of professors like me and you would say we should have a class about the Holocaust. You know, what's why are we having a class about the Holocaust? There's something out there that you can get students in seats and teach them about something very important and. Um, it had an impact. It had an impact that you can evaluate and an impact that sort of, you know, you can sort of speculate about, but it had a very serious impact when it comes to the immediacy of the 80s and, and Holocaust uh, becoming something that was uh, talked about and important. We don't have to get into the weeds on this, but, you know, I think it also in a weird roundabout way helped that, you know, Reagan was president through so much of the 80s and he was so mentally... Uh, locked into that idea of the post-war, you know, post-war sort of uh, geopolitical uh, uh, situation. So I don't know. I just, I'm not, it's not that the eighties was the only time for nostalgia, you know, the seventies, you saw started to see nostalgia and, and all that, but I think it, it, it certainly didn't hurt to have a president sort of see the world and sort of where the good guys are, the bad guys. And, you know, he never directly was involved, but he saw a lot of the films, supposedly, and all that went back when he did his stateside service. So um, it, it didn't hurt to have that to have that context. What also happened in 79 was uh, Jimmy Carter, I think, in regard to some of the, the things that we didn't do so positively, Jimmy Carter uh, signed, got initiated a, a commission to study uh Nazis and Nazis in America and trying to look into investigate Nazis in America and try to revoke citizenship for Nazis, which led to the discovery of John Demanyuk and others later on and trying to deport and or, um, you know, find bring some Nazis to justice eventually, which starts in 79 and continues, you know, the next generation or so. And again, we can't underestimate the importance of the miniseries in Germany. Uh, when it was when it was uh, shown in January of '79, 
and in a Cold War context with, of good and bad, evil and not, you know, many, many Germans got a pass. You know, they were allowed to come to this country. They were allowed to become citizens because they're the good Germans are the ones that are on the West side, not the East side, or they're not communists and so forth. Um, and I think a lot of Germans in West Germany got the same mentality. We're the good Germans. They're the bad Germans. We're the good side. And um, although a few of uh, the uh, guards, a few of the lower level people in, in the SS um, got prosecuted for their crimes, only the higher ups largely were prosecuted after the war. And there were so many, there were thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people who uh, committed atrocities that never got um, brought to justice. And I think this starts the, the Germans to this, showing this film, talk about it. Hey, dad, what did you do during the war? Hey, grandpa, what did you do during the war? What happened? What was the truth? You know, because they weren't talking about these things and they were trying to put trials to the side. You know, they had some trials, but it was really not, not to the extent that this shows that the common person was involved in, in atrocities, not just the higher ups. And I think that helped um, as well. And, and, and one other thing I want, before we go on, is uh, this miniseries does, for the first time, put Auschwitz in the national psyche. You, you, it's hard for us today to realize that the number one, uh, when you, we think of the Holocaust, we think of Auschwitz, right? Anne Frank and Auschwitz. Well, before 19... Uh, before 1980 or so, we thought of Anne Frank, and we thought about a camp, we thought about Buchenwald, we thought about Dachau, we thought about the camps that the Western countries liberated, the camps in the Western part of Europe, uh, not the camps in the East, Sobibor, Treblinka. I'd be, I'd be, I put money on the fact that I, less than 1% of Americans could identify Sobibor and Treblinka in the 70s, maybe maybe 5% <laughs> today, but Auschwitz, right? I, I'd say Auschwitz today is sort of, is Auschwitz today is like, when you think of the Holocaust, it's Anne Frank and Auschwitz, Auschwitz-Birkenau. That wasn't the case in 78. This sort of introduces Auschwitz and the preeminence of Auschwitz as a place because it was behind the, 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 the Berlin Wall. It was behind, it was in the Soviet bloc. It was in, cent, it was in South Central Poland um, during the old Cold War. No Americans had gone, very few Americans had gone to Auschwitz in 1978. Uh, it was a place that many people went to on the eastern side of things, but not on the west. And um, this is when people, you know, the next year in 1979, Pope John Paul II goes to Auschwitz. And then we, wow, that was in the miniseries, right? That must be something important. Um, we saw that place, and now po the Pope is talking from Birkenau and giving a speech. And, you know, it really brings up Auschwitz as a, as a physical place. And very few specimens like Auschwitz exist that are still largely intact or recreated to be intact um, from, the, from the war itself. So that has a major impact because millions of tourists today from around the world go to Auschwitz each year and are experienced the Holocaust and how it really happened and the places that really happened and, you know, helped, helped obviously by the fall of the Berlin Wall and the cult fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. But um, this miniseries brings Auschwitz as a word, you know, like, like the Holocaust. Auschwitz was hardly known before 1978 to the average American. Craig, you bring up this great point about the airing in Germany. And it reminded me, you know, at the end of the miniseries, after Dorf has taken his own life, his uncle comes to confront the family and 
tells them the atrocities that he committed. And the children and Dorf's wife, they just steadfastly look at the uncle and just say, you're wrong. You know, Dorf was a hero. Our daddy was a hero. You know, how was this miniseries received in Germany after the 1979 airing? Well, I, th I think one of the things, uh, the uncle today would be a war criminal. Uh, because the uncle was every much a part of the Holocaust as Dorf was. You know, we look at the uncle as being, you know, this guy who stood up for the Jews, had him keep working. But he was he was at Babiar, he was at, uh, he was in Auschwitz, Birkenau. You know, he's a war criminal. By today's standards, he would be prosecuted and, and put in jail for his crimes uh, as an accessory to the murder of six million Jews. Um, that being said, in 1979, when the, when the program was shown, it was met with great conversation and also opposition. Uh, there were lots of neo-Nazi groups uh, that were very opposed to its portrayal. Um, you know, it was something that, you know, older generation didn't really want to talk about it, but it really struck a chord with the newer, younger generation. The younger people wanted to understand, you know, because they, they'd heard these things before. You know, there's a there's a movie that came out in the late 1980s or early 90s, I forget exactly when, it's called The Nasty Girl. It's about, it's a German film. It's about a woman. Uh, it's a, it's a great, I think it was nominated for, it was not, Germany would not let it be nominated for an Academy Award at the time because they were so, it was about a woman who tries to undercover, un uncover the, the Nazi past of her, of her hometown. And she was called nasty by everybody because she was trying to uncover the, the past. And, um, you know, so yeah, people don't want to hear about these things. That's how it was in the '60s and '70s. You know, the young people hurt. Knew, everybody knew about it, but no one would talk about it. And this movie brought the conversation out, whether it be good conversation where it's saying, "Yeah, let's face up with the face my past," or that's not how it happened, but it did. What did happen? You know, let's talk about the truth then. What is the truth? Or those who are on the other side of it who are becoming more staunch you know neo-nazis you know and they say well we don't want that back again let's let's stomp that down as much as possible i think you know it opened conversation and that was again what what uh, tova felt you said we we're going to do introduce this to an audience and get people talking about it and it had that impact in america and it had that impact in germany and germany had to germany you know it's like some, someone suffering with some kind of um delusion the best thing is just open talking about it and working your, out your problems and Germany didn't do that the first 33 years, and it's done a lot of it since that time. And Germany, of all the countries in the world who have ever committed an atrocity, who have ever committed a genocide, Germany's done more to reconcile with their past than anyone else. You look at Turkey and the Armenians, they still deny it even happened. In Rwanda, they're struggling with the past in Rwanda. But Germany, Germany funds Auschwitz-Birkenau. Germany pays money to survivors. Survivors, uh, you know, get money from Germany. Um, there's a fund that goes to Yad Vashem. Germany's doing what it can. Germany's apologized. There are monuments in Berlin. There are museums in Berlin to the memory of the Holocaust survivors and victims of the Holocaust. Um, you don't see that in most places or most people who committed genocide. You don't see that in, in Phnom Penh with the Khmer Rouge. You know, you, you see a, an industry trying to capitalize on, on, on tourism and genocide tourism. But you don't see memorials being put up in Cambodia to, to remember the victims of the the Khmeres. So yeah, Germany's, I think this, and again, you don't want to put too much emphasis and importance on this miniseries in Germany, but it certainly was a turning point and a catalyst to spark conversation in a country that just didn't do it for 30 years. You also mentioned Schindler's List, which 
NBC, almost 20 years later in 1997, airs in prime time. Uh, I believe Uprising was also NBC. Can you talk about what happened in those 19 years, what the differentiation is between what they did in 78 and what they ended up doing in 97 with the films? I think, I think yeah, there, there, there are two television moments with the Holocaust after this. And, and one is in 97 with the broadcast of, of Schindler's List, again on NBC, same network. And then in 2001 with the miniseries, shorter miniseries, only two nights, uh, a three-hour program. Uh, called Uprising about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and I think um, if you're looking at looking at movies, looking at books, looking at uh, I mean books for popular consumption, looking at television programs, Schindler's List movie first, then a TV program second, Uprising made for television for NBC as well. Uh, what you learn, I, what, I think, what comes out of this moment from the Holocaust miniseries is that we can't do something on such a grand scale ever again because it is so complicated that you can't capture the essence of the Holocaust in eight hours. You would take 800 hours to do what we did. Um, so we need to narrow it down in some way, shape, or form. And a lot of the movies of the 80s and early 90s, and today still, take an aspect of the Holocaust. And a lot of the books that come out take an aspect of the Holocaust, whether they're historical nonfiction books or historical fiction books, which are difficult to swallow sometimes. I am the tattooist of Auschwitz. I am the mechanic of Auschwitz. I am the whatever, whatever, whatever it might be. One person, you know, talking about this mini, this, this microscopic story. And I think Schindler's List is that. Schindler's List is a movie that talks about one German Nazi guy who saves Jews. And in its own right, it's controversial for that reason alone, because it's all about a German, not the Jews. They're sort of, you know, anyway. But what happens when we make a television is that Spielberg, who has the gravitas to do what he wants to do, has made other movies, has made a lot of money, has a name. Everyone knew Steven Spielberg, the perfect guy to make this movie, um, who didn't take any uh, comments or criticism or didn't take any suggestions to edit his film from foreign countries or foreign leaders and kept it, you know, intact, brought it to TV and brought the TV with almost no editing whatsoever. And he, he wouldn't allow it to be edited in any way, shape, or form. There's more violence, more graphic violence in this film than there was in the Holocaust miniseries. There's more nudity and more graphic nudity in this miniseries. Not just, not just is there nudity in the camps, but there's also sexual intercourse in Schindler's List that they show, you know, not not graphic, but it's it's assumed that it's, you know, people who are not clothed. Um, and they brought the TV, and they brought the TV learning that we got to show it in its entirety. Anything edited says people can say, well, what's being left out of the story? And they also said we don't need to have commercials. And we mentioned before, how is it, uh, how can we have how you know how can you have commercials in the middle of a of a mini series about such a solemn topic like that and the commercials uh were at the beginning and the end um they were brief commercials not commercials that they showed ever before or, or after they were made just for that program they were very sensitive to the content that was in between and they were done by the ford motor company who paid 10 million dollars for two commercials um, and it was Ford because Henry Ford back in the 1910s and twenties and thirties was a virulent anti-Semite who, um, Henry Ford, uh, 
did business with Nazi Germany in Hitler's office. There's a picture of Henry Ford. He admired Henry Ford for what he had done. Um, so Ford is sort of making amends with its history, its past by sponsoring this program. And, you know, 25 million people saw Schindler's List at the movie theaters. And 65 million people saw Schindler's List on TV that night. So it more than doubled the number of people who saw that, that program at one night like you know it was you know this becomes not quite the the miniseries numbers i guess because the world of television had changed by that time but you know still 65 million viewers watched this which had a much bigger impact than the movie ever had so um it was very important it was done the right way as well you know again the movie's not perfect but it was a television spectacle as much as it can be at the time i, I remember myself watching it um, and being really excited it was on television, although I'd seen it at the movie theater, had rented it on, I'd rented it at Blockbuster on, DV, on, on VHS tape back in the middle 90s. I couldn't wait to be, see it on television in 97. It was, you know, something that's it's hard for us 26 years after to imagine that still being that way in the 90s, but it still was. It was a spectacle. Yeah. Craig, I love that you brought up the idea of it being a television spectacle because within the structure of commercial television, the primary goal is to sell products and services to consumers. And this occurs typically through commercial disruptions you know, because they want to get the viewers when they are most attentive. And that is when you're watching a story. So they, they disrupt and interrupt your story with commercials that we, I would think most of us try to avoid. But think about the writers and how challenging this could be when you're trying to write a story and you have to keep interrupting that story because you have a commercial break running up which means they need to include cliffhangers or uncertainties uh, within their story to make sure viewers don't go anywhere during the commercial break now apply this to the holocaust miniseries but not only breaking up the story across four episodes you know in four different nights but dividing it further because of commercial breaks and having to insert those breaks every 10 or 15 minutes for each hour. Not only is this challenging for the writers, I would imagine, but what does it do to a story as serious as the Holocaust? I mean, how much does it reduce it when you're trying to sell them products, sell the audience products in the middle of this really incredibly serious story? Um, so it was good to see that NBC kind of learned its lesson from doing this by the time they aired Schindler's List. I mean, to have a network say, we are not going to air commercials for the next three hours, that doesn't happen very often. It shows that NBC is willing to disrupt its entire business model because this story is so important and culturally important, historically important. Uh, and so I think that's a that's a really big thing that viewers hopefully noticed, but but that the network's willing to do. You know, the original criticism of the uh, 1978 miniseries was really about the commercials that I'm watching this heavy material. You know, you're educating people through this docudrama, and we got to take breaks to sell me products. It just seems really inappropriate. I was born in '70. I was eight when this came out, so I I, I don't remember. Uh, watching it on television, but I, I too have watched it afterward without commercials. But I've read, I've read books talking about the uh, how people were appalled, appalled that you would put a commercial where you want to buy a car, or have toothpaste or something, you know, or some even worse, you know, showing things that were somewhat related to what's happening in the actual miniseries, you know, but 
not directly, but indirectly associated with that with being just completely out of out of place. You know, how can you go from seeing somebody being executed to, hey, buy my toothpaste, you know, shiny white teeth, you know, and at the last you're on the verge of tears and you've seen some, one of your favorite characters being gassed in a gas chamber. And, oh, let's go, you know, let's go to Shakey's or Hardy's or something, you know, so... <laughs> Yeah, and that's I think that's one of the best lessons learned by the by Schindler's List and, and NBC agreeing to it. We gotta show this. This is a movie. It's not even you know we can't. How do you break it up? Even worse than a TV program where you can sort of work it toward that way. But this is a movie. We can't break it up into pieces like that. And you know the emotion, the emotions, the the, the yin and the yang with the with the audience. They just couldn't handle that again. I guess so. They learned that. Go ahead, Jonathan. Sorry. Oh, I just. Yeah, I think it, it it also sort of reflects what we've what we've learned and how our understanding of hol- of the Holocaust sort of changed in those ensuing years. Because just to say it plainly, yes, it was an experiment in '78, and they were hoping to make money off of it. But obviously, if you're going to run those commercials for stain remover or whatever, they're still thinking of it as this is just television. Television is television. Is television. Whereas by the time, as you said. Spielberg was the perfect guy because in his own words, he has, you know, said, I've been obsessed with that World War II era since I was a kid. And basically everything, almost every single thing I've ever done in film really is about that and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, so when you get to that point, it's like, oh, and I know this from some of my students and some folks younger than myself who have some variation of the story of like, I don't really know much about World War II, or I don't really know much about a Holocaust, but I remember my high school history teacher wheeling in the TV, and we all watched Schindler's, you know, Schindler's List. Like it was an educational moment as much as a, a popular film. I think culturally, you know, when we got to what is that, seventy-eight to ninety, you know, twenty-ish years uh, later. So, yeah, it's. Uh, but but yeah, maybe next time we can talk about sort of Steve's love of TV flow and that sort of incongruity, <laughs> you know, one way or the other. But um, <laughs> I, I, I don't, you know, this is a light thing, but it reminds me of the inverse. Same time period. I forget what it was we were watching. It was either like the notorious Star Wars holiday special from that time period or Kiss Goes to the Amusement Park TV specials. One of those. And it's this light, ridiculous, uh, inconsequential uh, uh, romp, you know, that makes no sense. It's incoherent. But the YouTube one we had, you know, did have the commercials. And there was the most earnest pro-union automotive workers commercials embedded within that. So it's like we're just having a goof. It's like the inverse. And there's suddenly like, you know, it's really good to have have a solid career that you can really invest in. That's why I support the UAW or whatever, you know, and it was like this very long two minute chunk. And it was like, wait a second. I thought we were just watching, you know, Gene Simmons and monster makeup, you know, gallivanting around, you know, amusement park. So yeah, TV <laughs> flow and the vice versa. It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I, I think, uh, and then, you know, if you want to just sort of cap this with, uh, the uprising mini series that came on a few years later, which is sort of capitalizing on the interest in Holocaust and Holocaust studies and so forth. Uh, in 2001, they had, uh, in November, early November 2001, they had the two nights, Sunday and a Monday, they broadcast, NBC again broadcast um, a, a, a brief miniseries, three hours on, um, four hours, I 
you know, two different nights with commercials. Uh, and uh, it was well done. I, you know, if, I don't know if you've both seen that or not, or either of you have seen that, but it was well done. Good actors, difficult to see David Schwimmer in a role like that. David Schwimmer, Hank Azaria, John Voight, you know, um, good story on the Warsaw ghetto uprising of 1943, which was a part of the, this in um, the miniseries on the Holocaust. Um, the problem with this, it was probably, it was very tight. It was two nights. It was good. It's a, it's a, I show clips from that uh, series for my classes on the Holocaust occasionally. So it was it, even 22 years later. Um, the problem it had was, this is now 2001. There are more options to view. It was broadcast on the first night of game seven of the 2001 World Series between the Yankees and the and the Diamondbacks. Mm. Um, if you remember that one going way back, uh, you know, there was it, it was the World Series game seven. The Emmy Awards were on CBS that same night, which had been delayed twice because of 9-11, which happened two months earlier. Um, and even ABC's The Practice beat it in the ratings. So, you know, Game, game seven had a 36 share of the audience. The Emmys had a 16 share. The practice had a 10 share. And NBC, this, this show had a had 6.4 rating and a seven share. You know, so it would fi finished fourth amongst the big four networks and ratings. People just didn't wow. watch it. And the next, if you didn't watch part one, you didn't watch part two. You know, it was, it was, didn't pick up much the next night. So it was well done. It was what you want, what you want. Yeah, I was going to say, and this this is an off-the-cuff comment, folks. This is not researched, uh, et cetera, you know. Uh, <laughs> but what's interesting is at that time period, because I, I, I totally admit, Craig, I remember the title of this. I have a vague remembrance of it, but it's certainly not something that I always go back to. But famously, the other big series about that time period that premiered around there as well was, or just a little earlier than that, was Band of Brothers. And and the first episode or two certainly was hurt because it happened right around 9-11. But it's not like any of us right now are going, oh, wait, what did you say, Jonathan? Band of what? Oh, I've never heard of that. And, you know, no one, no one is interested in blah, blah, blah. Um, it's just interesting sort of... Uh, uh, perhaps where we where we look to focus our ideas and interest about World War II and World War II trauma and all this stuff. Again, that's an off the cuff. I may be totally wrong about that, but just kind of caught my caught my ear. That episode nine, Band of Brothers, is why we fight. Right? It's all about the Holocaust. So it's something that again probably had more of an impact it has more of an impact than the uprising miniseries ever did because most people have never heard of uprising so you know again H hbo did band of brothers and um they followed up with the with the sequel to band of brothers in the pacific as well not quite as popular but also important and good um again you know this is uh the new the new type of media and television is moving to cable and and uh, and, and so forth and NBC sort of got you know couldn't quite recreate the magic of Schindler's List or the Holocaust miniseries. Craig, I can't thank you enough for being here today and across these two episodes, giving us so much insight to not only the significance of this miniseries, but contextualizing us for us in the 1970s, providing 
the impact it had uh, worldwide and, and in this country in the years and the decades that followed. Uh, it's really appreciative that, that you could share this with us today. And I, I know our audience appreciates it. Thank, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Jonathan, a lot. I, you know, I just want to reiterate that uh, this was an important miniseries for a number of reasons. You know, it, it really had, it, it, it was the right miniseries at the right time that was done imperfectly, to say the least. Um, but it, 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 it had to be done. And, and I don't know how it could have been done differently at the time. You know, I think NBC the, did the best it could with uh, a, a topic that was enormous. And we learned a lot from their mistakes, but I think the, the thing we should focus on more than the mistakes that NBC made in the presentation of it is the impact it had since in many different ways, you know, from, from scholarship to pop culture to television to, you know, just what you what kids learn in school today about the Holocaust. And um, so I, I think this is something that you should, um, you know, maybe not watch today, but when you think about it and talk about it, you know, this is, assign it the importance it deserves because it really was an important watershed moment in, in, the, in American television and, and, and the Holocaust. Um, because it, it opened up a new era in terms of um, understanding and, and, and like I said, you know, help people realize it happened and how meaningful and important it is to understand that it did happen and, um, and go from there. So that is our conversation with Dr. Craig Coonan. I want to thank him again for generously donating his time across these two episodes to have this great in-depth conversation about the miniseries Holocaust. It's always fun when we can host these episodes, Jonathan, but also gain an education in the process, which Craig definitely provided me today. Yeah, and I think of the two of us, Steve, I think I have a little bit more background with it, although I'm, please understand, I'm, uh, you know, sometimes I think people, you know, you always look people up online and whatever. If, if anyone's ever done their homework with with me, you'll see that like when Steve and I were at Rutgers, one of my committee members is a pretty well-known sociologist who used to run the uh, 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 program over at Rutgers regarding uh, Jewish culture and, and studies, uh, Yal Zeruvel. But just because she was on my committee, I'm I'm not a proper you know uh, Holocaust scholar or you know the Jewish experience, etc. But I know a little bit. But I'll say that one of the things that really I I maybe I knew this, but I certainly if I did I forgot that I thought that it was cool that Craig brought up was I totally didn't know about the effect of Carter sort of authorizing or or supporting the ability to go after sort of uh, uh, Nazi war criminals, essentially. Um, that was sort of an interesting idea. Again, I know about, you know, videotape and let's start recording oral histories and getting it out there, et cetera. Uh, but that was really interesting. And also just to remind me, I did know this, but I forgot about how long it took to get the museum going because they, they wanted to get it, you know, they, they started talking and planning in the early 80s, but it wasn't until the early 90s. So that was that was sort of uh, that was sort of fascinating. Yeah, and you know, I'm really struck by just the facets of power that network television held in the 20th century. When you think about it, I mean, such a high concentration of viewers watched this miniseries, and it provided momentum for real world events. 
not directly connected with television. And so, you know, Craig brought these up. First, you have the nation's understanding of the Nazis and the Holocaust and expanding it beyond Anne Frank. Uh, Secondly, the development of a national museum. And third, you know, to go after war criminals, to hold Nazis accountable and begin talking about this again. It really generated that conversation and and this momentum to, to get all these things going. It makes you wonder if this wasn't produced, would any of these things I mentioned be happening in the 1980s, in the 1990s? Would Schindler's List have been able to air on NBC or how would they have handled that? The miniseries is really, I just see a catalyst for all of these things happening and the popularity and the global reach of this miniseries just demonstrates the sheer power of network television with a collective audience in the 1970s. Yeah, and and I think down the road, I'm just thinking out loud here, is I think down the road we might do some kind of future episode that connects to more modern forms of media like podcasting because, you know, famously so much of our interest these days on cold cases and true crime and serial killers, etc., are out of all the diligent work of podcasting uh, shows devoted to these topics now. And I think that the hook of that episode would be that you're talking about NBC 78 mass audience, and yet you can still get this sort of momentum, but in a completely different way these days via this hyper-focused, hyper-niche audience with podcasting. And it's, it's sort of same kind of possible effects, but working in different ways. So, yeah, interesting sort of moment in broadcast history. Yeah, and, you know, just the sheer magnitude of the audience that this miniseries um, was able to gather together. 120 million viewers. I doubt we're, we're likely to see that again. Uh, you, normally you would attribute those types of figures to the Super Bowl. But even recently in the 21st century, Super Bowls are not coming that close anymore. Just because of the choice, the plethora of choice that exists with streaming platforms, it's unlikely that we're ever going to see that kind of concentrated audience again. Um, not saying it won't happen, but it's unlikely. And, you know, Jonathan, you brought up water cooler talk previously. I think today water cooler talk is more about discovering new content where I can hear from people who can mention a show they really like and I have to add it to my queue. Oh, thanks for bringing that up to me. Um, whereas in the old days, you know, 20th century, um, Weather Cooler Talk was about sharing in those collective viewing uh, experiences. And today it's more about discovering new viewing yeah. experiences. And and I'll sort of I'll sort of state the obvious here. If you've stayed with us through this whole episode, you you certainly know the sort of thing I'm going to say, and that is, that's the danger in today's media environment that is so curated, that is so nicheified to our own interests and our own habits, that within that media ecosystem, there's this great danger of losing the lesson of that kind of mass systematic brutality against a particular people over what it, for whatever reason, uh, their sexual preference, their religion, their culture, etc. And then when you mix that sort of curated media culture in with just absolute um, intentional ignorance, intentional hatred, intentional irrationality, you know, you potentially lose what was so real 
what was so lasting an impression and what should have been and what has tried to be such a lesson. And that's part of why this miniseries was broadcast. As, as Craig mentioned, you know, certain actors in the show were like beside themselves because they just could not real, they couldn't wrap their heads around such brutality and that it actually happened. So I think that's, that's, you know, the, the, that's missed that, that lack of mass audience. And we need to find those other ways these days beyond the mass audience to get the word out to, you know, uh, have information we can trust and, uh, and to see the, um, see the, I know, I, isn't it insane I'm about to say this folks, to see the benefits of following rationality rather than just sort of emotional outbursts and wishful thinking and, uh, and anger based thinking and hatred and all that stuff, because, you know, you do, you know, as history, we like to think history teaches and we risk sort of going right back through all these, uh, all these situations. And I don't know when you're listening to this folks, so I don't want to date the podcast, but you know, the battles that are going on right now against sort of science, rationality, history, etc. And we're, you know, we are have to be careful that we're not going to backslide into those sort of, uh, sort of territories. Um, and again, then I think what's so fascinating to me is all that was done from a crazy late seventies NBC sort of miniseries. That's that's a sort of weird incongruity of it. But yeah, I enjoyed the heck out of these this two part episode, Steve. I'm really glad you uh, you led it and and organized it. Uh, I, I do hope it it will be something that the audience has enjoyed as much as as we have uh, going gone through it. Your comments just sparked an idea in my mind that I don't think we really talked about today, and that is the mode of storytelling. Mm. You know, what does it say about how NBC thought of their audience with the mode of a docudrama rather than, say, going with a straight documentary? And would a documentary have been as effective at maintaining, or I should say, sustaining audience attention across all four nights of the miniseries? Is there another way that NBC could have conveyed this information, uh, you know, in a different vehicle, a different mode of storytelling? And I'd be fascinated to see if NBC has kept memos or they've archived the decision-making for how they handled the mode of storytelling and what were those early conversations like when this idea was first presented to them and they began working on it to go into production for this series. Yeah, and, and I don't want to put myself on the on the uh, you know on the hook for doing this but uh uh i have a feeling that there may be a mini episode of this podcast either before this episode airs or in the middle between the two parts where i may try to take a look at how they ran promos for the mini series how they chose to sell it to the audience uh what tone they took etc that might be interesting to kind of get into as a way to prep for this uh, these episodes well see now you have an assignment to work on and i'll hold you accountable to that because i agree that would be a fascinating study to see if something is really there unfortunately we're going to have to wait until next time to hear about how that research goes because we are out of time but i want to thank our guest dr craig coonan and hope that you've enjoyed listening to these two episodes as much as Jonathan and I enjoyed being a part of this conversation and grateful for it as well. You can find us online at tvhistorypod.com. We're also on Patreon, so please consider subscribing and rating this podcast on whatever platform you choose to listen to it. 
and we hope you'll join us once again. So until next time, I'm Steve Voorhees, he's Jonathan Bollinger, you've been listening to Inside the Box, the TV History Podcast. Thank you.